Uh, can I ask you first, will we, do you want to go back or do you want to go around a bit there? Oh, around a bit. A bit wet though. That's all right, I've got boots. Okay. One day, not very long ago, I was walking across a field I know well with a woman I also know well. On this day, however, the field looked unfamiliar. There was a small army of men I didn't know crossing it, carrying sacks which were full of twigs, like sheaves of arrows in a quiver. The ground was a puzzle of small holes and heaps of earth. And the woman, who's my aunt, told me that we were watching a woodland being born. You're listening to Encounters, stories about our natural world. I'm Regan Hutchins. I'm travelling around Ireland to hear about how the forests, meadows and hedges play their part in our life stories, because each of us encounters the natural world uniquely. In this final episode, we'll travel between the past and the future, and we'll rest to savour the here and now. We'll hear stories of beginnings and endings. And we start on my aunt's farm outside Skibbereen. Patricia O'Donovan has been managing it alone in the seven years since her husband died. But as we'll hear in this short encounter, she can still turn to him for guidance. It's about um, 18 hectares of native woodland being planted on the farm. As a widow, I really couldn't manage or run the farm, and um, this was the answer to my prayers, I think, or inspiration from Gerard, my late husband. What do you think he would have made of this now, Pat? Well, I think most farmers would have difficulty giving over good workable land for forestry, but I, knowing Gerard, like uh, if he came to retirement from farming, this would be a dream for him, I would honestly think. He would never want to leave this place, so this would enable us to be here and, you know, have it all without the hassle. And as we're standing here, we're watching, I can see four men planting. Yeah. Now, how many trees? 50,000. <laughs> <laughs> 50,000 trees, yeah. Yeah, so it's... Um, it's more than a thousand an acre. <laughs> this is for me a dream now to to have a woodland and to still have the land to walk about every day as I do with my two doggies. And I believe that I was inspired by Gerard as well in this decision. I really do. You kind of talked to him, didn't you? I did. I did. I really asked for his help. And. You were surprised, were you, by the light bulb moment? I was completely stunned. You know, it had never, ever occurred to me that it would be possible for me to do it. Once I got in touch with Alan Farley of Greenbelt, he was able to tell me everything I needed to know. Everything would get maintained for four years, and then it maintains itself after that. And a nice tax-free income every year for the icing on the cake. <laughs> What? What? They're not alike. About that. <laughs> I'm going to love 
having the woodland for as long as I can. <laughs> and then it's a legacy after that to nature. What can you imagine it to be in 50 years time? A mature woodland is all, say, hopefully there'll be lots of bluebells and all sorts of little wildflowers growing. Sadly, I won't be seeing any of that, <laughs> but <laughs> somebody will. <laughs> Reed Bunting really couldn't give a damn about no, us. absolutely not. He's saying, I'm here, I'm, I'm very happy. Look at Lambay Island. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> it's like... It's like a mystical island, isn't it? You'd think you were in Greece. While my aunt will be keeping her eye on the future as it grows around her farmhouse in West Cork, on the east coast of Ireland near Malahide, Mary Toomey has her eye fixed on the present... She's staring out across a blue sea to Lambay Island. I've joined her for a day of bird watching. Mary has recently retired from her job as a secretary in a local school, a job she held for 42 years. We're sitting on a hill in a meadow, which for both of us is a true delight. It's a nail, reed bunting. He's just performing for us. Absolutely. These are the special moments. I love when this happens. I used to be working in the office and I'd be looking out windows just wishing I had a bit more time to do what I really want to do, is sit in meadows. That's what I say. Sitting in a meadow, to me, is it. My father was a commercial horticulturist and we always tended to live in more outdoory type places. We were living between Dundalk and Castling Bellingham, which was a six acre nursery, but there was loads of rough grass and ground at the back of the nursery. Even as a seven year old, I would sit there for two to three hours, just very similar to this, looking at like oxide daisies, the poppies. And then I was very lucky because the cuckoos used to use the trees a little bit further back. Now, as a seven-year-old watching cuckoos, like, what more could you want? Did you actually see them? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your camera. I'm not a, a technical person, okay. so I don't really understand. I, I have a Nikon D500 with a crop sensor, which will give me a bit extra reach. And I do have a Prime 500 lens. It isn't too heavy. It looks heavy. Yeah, it actually isn't too bad, but there's no way... Um, I could carry anything heavier than that. In my early 20s, I was diagnosed with grade four endometriosis. Basically, it's a condition, but I did have my uterus and ovaries taken out. I had loads of hormone treatment been put into menopause much earlier than I should have been. It's quite a painful condition. And as the time went on, it got more and more painful. By my early 30s, it wasn't working. So that's when they just basically took everything out. And I, thought, great, that's grand, get on with my life now. But ten years later, I had my large bowel taken out, and a year after that, I had my rectum taken out, and now I have an ileostomy, which I have no problems with. It has given me freedom. That's how you go to the toilet. <laughs> it's a bag, yeah. 
But we're thrown down here on the on the meadow, yeah. and we've no chairs. We're just yeah. on the grass. Like, is it is it not very? Are you not feeling discomfort? Or? No, not at all. Like, in fact, sometimes I need to be on my stomach, so I just make sure that there's no rocks or anything that would just knock off it, because I'm well able to crawl, as same as anybody else. Because sometimes you do have to get down to ground level, especially if I was photographing something like sandalings or dunlins. You know what? At a shore, like. I don't want to be propped up. I want to be at their level. Now, if I was in terrible pain, I probably wouldn't be out here. Being in a lot of pain doesn't put me in bad humour. I think I have learned that because otherwise I would have made everybody else around me miserable and I'd have made myself miserable. So I have an amazing capacity to be in an awful lot of pain and still be okay. I would never say, like, why me? My attitude with that would be, why not? Am I something special? Like, but because, and you see, I look fine. So it's not visible. But believe you me, I feel it, you know. After that operation I had in 2006, I was very ill in hospital and I was on loads of morphine. And when you're on morphine, you get terrible dreams and nightmares. It's, it's not very pleasant. So what I used to do was transport myself to habitats like this, just for a minute or two minutes, and it did make the difference. I could totally bring myself here, yeah. And I did that as I was recovering, because the recovery took six months, and I was in an awful lot of pain for months, and that's what I used to do when I was lying in bed. Yeah. So can you see it did sustain me? Yeah. You brought your Observer Book of Birds, which I take it is from your childhood. It is. <laughs> <laughs> As you can see, uh, it's very well uh, worn. I looked at that book over and over, and I always wished that each page was in colour, not every second page. Oh. When did you kind of start looking at birds? I'd say when I was about seven. As kids, if we, we would always go for walks on a Sunday with both mum and dad, and uh, he would tend to point out birds and plants as we were walking by. So it's, I'd say it's from there that I actually started getting interested. What were the birds of your childhood? There used to be loads of goldfinches. I loved lapwings. There was not a moorland around the nursery, so lapwings, again and still would be one of my favourite birds. There was a lot more curlews, so listening to the curlews at night, that plaintive sound, unfortunately they're in deep trouble at the moment. There, there was a lot of moorland, arable land, you know, there was, it was a good place for, at that stage. The crops weren't over-intensified at that stage. I actually saw my first hen harrier when I was about nine. Skylarks are amazing when you think that they can ascend up to 100 metres. And I think they've three, over 300 syllables in their repertoire. And for a bird that size that has the stamina to go that far and sing its little heart out, again, it's another uh, sound from my childhood. Yeah, mine too, yeah. Yeah. The 
sun that's just come out has sort of brought them out too. It, they do actually. I've noticed that here when I'm here with the sun starts right, you know, getting very bright up they'll be going. This is a little piece of heaven, isn't it? You just come away from here, just feeling totally replenished. I discovered last summer, I I guess I really started bird watching, you know, kind of going out with a yeah. book and binoculars. And, and I found that afterwards I had this real calm. Bird watching really just helped with stress. Yes, I totally understand that because you also have to be quiet and you have to listen and you have to, in a way, engage with what's around you. So that is actually very calming. And I've been described by my friends as a good listener. But maybe it's all my years of listening to wildlife. Sometimes it's better to be quiet and listen than maybe not talking. Because people don't need solutions, they just want to be heard. Because they, they'll figure it out themselves. You're listening to Encounters, stories about our natural world. I'm Regan Hutchins. In this episode, I hear stories about the past, present and future. And here's a little story from my past. When I was 11, almost 12, I hid in a large bag in the garden. And I can't remember doing this, but like Mary, I've held on to all of my bird books and nature books from when I was a child. So... I can still read these detailed notes of the field trip. 1st of June, 1987. Skibbereen County Cork, 12 p.m., cloudy, but warm with sun in patches. Managed to find an old green bag, very big. I slit a hole on one side and I brought my bird watching books and binoculars. The bag worked to charm, but made a bit of a noise. A few, two, house martins flew by and then a swallow followed, lots of gulls and a robin stopped to sing a little way off. The bag was very conspicuous, but I wasn't. I came in after an hour though, because of children arguing and shouting. Is that a hawthorn and willow? Is that willow? I, I don't know what type of willow, but I think it's a willow. Because you see willow warblers in this. Now let's look at the world through the eyes of another young naturalist. Fuchsia. Herb Robert. Why do you like the Herb Robert? You always pointed out when we were walking. Yeah. It's a nice, like it can be light pink, dark pink, maybe a bit purpley sometimes. It's like a sun of love instead of light. It's like a pink sun. In our next encounter, I'm walking with my first cousin, once removed. Olin Courtney. We need to like get, go along the middle and then we need to jump across to there. He's eight, so he's a bit younger than I was when I was sitting in my bag in the garden. It's June, there are chiff-chaffs and willow warblers singing, there's bees buzzing and flowers everywhere, and Olin is very much focused on the present moment as he shows me around his forest at Loch Ein, just outside Skibbereen. 
It's a robin. That, that really... Yeah. I hope we didn't say something bad. <laughs> In your bird language? Yeah. The robin I took, take it off is cursing. What do you think it's saying? I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I could speak robin. Or bird. I can recognise the rook jackdaw and other things like that. Like other things in the crow family. I know some like some birds like a chaffinch will do a light cheep because they're so small. <coughs> or something like that. Do you have a, a wish list of some birds that you've never seen that you'd really like to see? I'd like to see a jay. They're colourful, but I like them. They're not like most crows are black and grey, but they're like pink and blue. But the magpie is cool. The magpie's a nice bird. It looks like a white bird that has put on a black suit. We get them a ton in our garden because of our chickens. They love the chicken food. Oh no, do they eat the chicken food? They try. They haven't been successful. The two worst things you can put in the sea or the ground is a cigarette and a plastic bag. They're like, like a trap for poisonous snakes with no way out to a small animal. And even for a big animal like an antelope, if it ate a cigarette, that, like that, that would probably kill it. Blue butterfly. It's so bright blue. Yeah, and is it ever going to land? Must be like Wonderland to him. It's literally food, is trees. Like, right on the buttercups, it might be like on the flowers, it might be trees to them. Like, let's see, all these trees around us are covered in like, yeah, honey. It's landed. Grey on the outside with a white eye outline and bluey purpley wings. Like Olin, my friend Annie knows the names of many flowers. My mum was a wildlife illustrator and she was very keen to teach me all the names of, of everything, like ragged robin, harebells, foxgloves, cow parsley, meadowsweet, I love to live the smell of meadowsweet. Annie Atkins is a graphic designer living in Dublin, but was brought up in a house at the edge of a forest in North Wales. All my favourite pics of me and my mum together are of when I was a baby. She just looks so wild in all of them. They're all of her, like, upper mountainside, wearing some kind of army jumper with me in a sling or breastfeeding me with windswept hair. She always has this big, like, massive toothy grin with a big gap between her two front teeth. This image is very striking for two reasons. Annie's Irish mother was called Mary Heenahan, and she died in March of 2020. And also, as Annie is sitting on the couch in June 2021, She's 38 weeks pregnant with her second child. Well, one of the things I miss about not having my mum around anymore is being able to marvel at my son together. 
because it's one of those things you can only really do with your immediate family. Um, (laughs) And she always used to marvel about how wonderful he was. Of course she did. She was his grandmother. Your mum was diagnosed with cancer. Almost immediately she moved into a hospice. Uh-uh. Uh, and she died three weeks later. Um, the time in the hospice, you were all around, your Irish family were around, yeah. uh, but eventually, once she died, you had to say goodbye to her. Yeah. I remember the hospice inviting us to go and look at her, her body. And I'm so glad I did because she looked beautiful. She's like me, we both have like this very naturally frowny face. It's just our resting expression. We're very frowny people. (laughs) And her frown had just completely disappeared. Her face was so at rest. And there was this beautiful little bunch of daffodils by her head on the pillow. Hmm. And they were daffodils that my cousin Lucy had brought over from Galway from Mary's mother's garden in Headford, so my grandmother's garden. So when I saw the daffodils on the pillow next to her head, I had this like really great sense of they came from her mother's garden and now here they were. Like just this sense of everything going back to the earth somehow. And I felt very spiritual about things, and I could really feel like my mum's presence. Very much so. In things, or in the air? Everywhere, all around. But throughout the morning, there had been this bird hammering at the window in the living room. Just flying into the window again and again, and pecking at the window pane. When we all sat down together for some lunch, I said, God, there's that bird again. And everyone said individually, oh yeah, I noticed it as well this morning. Like, what does it want? And then we suddenly all looked at each other and said, of course, it's Mary. And I absolutely believe it. Because to me, there was just no other possible logical explanation as to why this bird would suddenly have been there. Because I took a picture of it. And I sent it to you, Regan, and you said you thought it was a robin. And then later on, much, much later on, months later, a year later, I was reading on the internet that a robin is symbolic of death. And that just cemented things for me. I was like, that bird was absolutely no question. That was my mother hammering out the window. Um, And I, I, I like to think that, you know, because I feel like she was still hanging around at that point. But the, the really hard thing about that that time, of course, was this, there was this like rolling news headline about the virus, and we just had to get out of there, like because nobody knew what was going to happen. There were all these stories about lockdowns on the horizon. We kind of acted very quickly. We decided not to have a funeral. Myself and Neil and Mabon would come back to Dublin. And we would do a funeral later. Um, So we just kind of took off 
my dad went to went to collect her ashes and we were kind of packing up our things to leave and it was March up until that point it had still been quite miserable and grey and cold and wet and there were snowdrops in the garden and I remember my mum when I was a little girl teaching me that if you shake very gently shake a snowdrop you'll welcome in the spring because they symbolise the end of the end of winter and the beginning of spring and I took Marbon round with me to the front garden and I told him the same thing and I said if you shake this snowdrop now you're welcome in the spring very gently and he did shake it very gently and all of a sudden the sun broke through the clouds and the whole valley was flooded with sunlight and we left the house and I really felt that 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 was something to do with my mum as well, that she was there kind of orchestrating all this for us. Uh, because it was really difficult to leave the house knowing that it was the last time that I'd be there when she was also there. Because I knew that when we went back, she wouldn't be there anymore. And she wasn't. You know, the next time mm. we went back a few months later, she was gone. Like, like I, 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 t I take great comfort in feeling the spirituality of nature now. Whereas I think when I was younger, I was very scathing about it. I would have laughed at my older self believing that my mum was a bird. Like, <laughs> I think my mum would have as well. Like, we would have had a good laugh at it together. <laughs> We began this programme with a new wood brought to life in Skibbereen, and we can end it with a tiny new wood which has just woken up in Dublin. This is Roscoe. Roscoe was born three weeks ago, and his name means deer wood in Old Norse. I feel pretty tired, but I'm definitely looking ahead to doing things like going back into the forests for nice walks. I actually really am looking forward to that stage where I can just sling him up and go for a walk with him, because we're a little bit housebound at the moment. Just learning how to feed a baby all over again. You've been listening to the final episode of Encounters, which was presented and produced by me, Regan Hutchins. My thanks to all the people who shared their stories for this series.